Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul here. Believe it or not, it has been about eight weeks since we were last together in this room that I'm in right now, March 15th, and it's hard to believe. You know, and there's no question that God has blessed us um, just with some unique ways to connect, to worship together this season. Thank the Lord for technology, our live stream, social media, online, Bible studies, Zoom calls. Well, well Zoom is kind of like a half curse, half blessing. You get what I'm saying. But this, just for me personally, this time that we've had in First Peter has been, again, you've heard me use this phrase before, it's been like spiritual smelling salts for my soul. And it's a reminder, First Peter is, that being unable to gather is not the way it's supposed to be. And, and, and here's what I mean. Do you realize that when you read through the whole book of First Peter, there are no singulars in this book, only plurals. No eyes, no me's, only we's, only you's. You see, all the exhortation, all of the prayers, all of the commands, the, the cries of the heart that Peter writes about, they are directed corporately to the family of God. Peter tells us, for example, we are a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we are a people set apart, as we're going to learn about this morning. Now, you may have heard the phrase before, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And let me give you an example of what that means. If you were going to try to forecast, for example, this upcoming football season, and how good is FSU going to be, and that's assume we're playing games in front of people. But as you're trying to forecast how good the Seminoles are going to be, you can't simply look at each individual player and how many stars they have by their name or how highly ranked they were coming out of high school or how good a player they are individually. All those are important, but the real question is how do they play together? And in the same way, the church is much, much more. It's not less than, but it's much, much more than just its individual Christians living out their individual lives. You see, church, First Peter reminds us that there is something unique, something mysterious, something powerful, something God-glorifying that happens when the church comes together as the people and family of God. So this past season, as we've all navigated this unprecedented time, at least in our own lives, the elders, the pastors, the staff here at Four Oaks Colorado, we've been talking, we've been praying, we've been discussing, Lord, when should we start meeting together again? What does that look like? What does wisdom look like? What does your word have to say about these things? We've been talking to other churches in town, consulting medical professionals. Thank Lord we have a Dr. Brooks, an infectious disease doctor that goes to church right here, consulting all the local authorities, CDC, Florida, you get the idea. And as of this moment, we are targeting May 31st, that would be in two weeks, um, to begin gathering again. And that's all under the umbrella, according to James, if the Lord wills, if nothing changes between now and then. So May 31st is going to be two services, 9 and 11 a.m. We're going to continue to live stream for those who need to, to continue to remain away for whatever reason. Um, there's going to be a, it's not going to look like typical church. There's going to be a process for registering, reserving seats to enable us to implement social distancing guidelines. There's not going to be children or student ministries during this phase. We're going to be exercising all the safety and sanitation and hygienic guidelines uh, that you would expect. 
And we're going to be sending something out this week through Facebook, through the interwebs, our website, um, Instagram, all that good stuff, email communique that will give you more information. We'll let you know how this is going to work, what the procedure, what the process is going to look like. But I would just ask now that you would just pray with us, that you would join in um, asking the Lord for wisdom for us as leadership, um, direction, guidance, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And before we jump into 1 Peter this morning, let's pray, let's commit this decision to the Lord, let's commit our church family to the Lord, and let's commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do say, in accordance with your word, if the Lord wills, we don't presume upon your grace, we don't presume upon your timing, and we know you hold the whole world in your hands, and so you can stop us, you can accelerate us, you can pause us, you can do whatever is in your holy will. And Father, we just pray that this would be a season that even as the word, even as the people of God are bound and not able to gather, we are confident that the word of God is never bound. And so we're asking, Father, this morning that that word indeed would speak to our hearts. And we ask that you would bless this time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2. And of course, Peter has been speaking to us, telling us, teaching us about a living hope. Now, if we wanted to kind of get it right down to brass tacks and trying to understand what is the difference in what we would call worldly hope and biblical hope, Karen Job, commentator, says this has to do with certainty. To listen to this quote, biblical hope is the assurance of that which the heart longs for will certainly come to pass. See, at the heart of biblical hope is certainty. And the reason we can have certainty is that our certainty as Christians is a function of the one who's doing the guaranteeing. See, think about all the the hopes that are not necessarily bad hopes, but all the hopes that you and I have no control over this coming season. I hope we go back to school or not. I hope there's college football. I hope my 401k, 401k bounces back. See, those are all certainly legitimate, maybe wishes, desires, but there is absolutely no certainty to them. And last week, as we looked at this same text, and it was kind of part one, We looked at the basis for that certainty. We looked at the basis for our hope as believers, and it's fundamentally in the new birth, that through the living word of God, God has breathed life through his spirit into our souls. He's made us alive. Just as Christ was resurrected, you and I are resurrected. That is a certainty. That's something we can put our stake in the ground on. And now as we go back to this text, part two, we're asking a subsequent question, and it's simply this. Pastor Paul, how do people like us who say that our hope is in Christ, that we have a living hope, how do we live that out? What does living hope, so to speak, look like? Pastor Paul, we need some help in knowing how this to show up in our lives. So that's where we're going in these next few minutes together. And and there's three points this morning. They all evolve around this idea of hope, and here they are. First of all, we're going to talk about the posture of hope. Secondly, the practice of hope. And thirdly, the purchase of hope. 
And my parents would be so excited to know that they spent all that seminary education money just so that we could alliterate those three points. But there we are, the fruits of the seminary education. But let's look first at our posture of hope. Look at verse 13, chapter 1. Peter gives a command. It's an imperative. Set your hope fully on God's grace. Understand something. This is not a request. If your house is on fire, you say, get out. When your house is on fire, you do not say, well, what would you guys think about doing tonight? Or would you guys want to think about leaving maybe here shortly before the fire gets out of control? No, 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 no. It would be a command. It's an imperative. It's an urgency in face of an emergency. And that's the nature of what Peter says here. Set your hope. And then for additional added emphasis, he inserts this word fully. It means to entrust with full confidence. So for those of you who are card players out there, you play Texas Hold'em, you you know the phrase all in, right? That means when you have a winning hand and you know it, maybe you have four aces in the hole and you know you can't lose no matter what other card or hand a player plays. And Peter's is saying, that's the believer because of the new birth. That's the believer because of the resurrection. And so because of these things, we can now set our hope fully on Jesus. And, and Peter gives us two ways here in these opening verses how that might look in our lives or how it should look in our lives. In the first one, he says, prepare your mind for action. Now, in the version that um, Kim just read to us, um, the New King James Version, which she read from, and we're working from the ESV this morning, um, her version interpreted it literally, and it's actually a great translation. It literally means, gird up the loins of one's mind. You may say, Pastor Paul, what in the world does, does that mean? What does that have to do with preparing your minds for action? Well, in the ancient Near East, everyone, even dudes, wore robes, right? It was part of the dress, part of the culture, kind of like a long kilt, And so that was great for everyday wear, but when it was time to go to work, when it was time to run, when it was time to fight, when it was time to do something urgent, what did you do? You kind of gathered up those robes, you tucked them into your tunic and your belt so that they wouldn't trip you up, so that they wouldn't make you stumble along the way. It'd be like going out into an NFL field and saying, I'm going to put, suit up and play, but without my helmet, without my shoulder pads, you would be ridiculously crazy to do such a thing. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get some mental resolve. Understand the battle that you're in. Tie up the loose ends of your thinking. Don't be double-minded. Don't fall asleep at the will. Be alert. And he adds emphasis to this when he says, and be sober-minded, right? This is a term that's used to refer to drunkenness versus being sober. And what Peter is, again, warning us towards is don't be drunk with the allurements of this world. Don't get zoned out. Don't fall asleep at the will. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to conquer and devour. Peter is impressing upon us this posture, church, Because Christianity is not a passive endeavor. Peter says, fix your hope on, and go back to the text, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately our hope 
is based upon the fact that not only has Jesus come once, but he's coming again. This is a reference to the second coming. That Christ is alive. And because Christ is alive right now, living within us by the Holy Spirit, we have confidence that he is coming back, and that's the ultimate trap card. That's the ultimate certainty. So when we grieve in this life, and we most certainly will grieve, church. Many of us are grieving this season over various losses and things that are happening. We will grieve, but what? We will not grieve as those who do not have hope. Just a question before we leave this point. What is your hope fixed upon this season? What is mediating your level of hope? Is it the economy? Is it the weekly or daily CDC report? Something else? News? What is your experience of hope? Peter gives us a way in this text to tell us what our posture towards hope is. He says that when we fix our hope on the coming grace of Jesus Christ, holiness is the result. When you and I have a posture of hope, of anticipation, of grabbing hold of the grace of Christ, holiness happens. And that's going to be our second point, the practice of hope. Now, if you ever took an intro to psychology class as an undergraduate in college, you probably are familiar with the, with the Rorschach test. It's a, it's a psychological test where they'll show you pictures of ink blots, right? Shapes of different things, and they can interpret your deep, deepest, darkest sins and dysfunctions by what you think this picture looks like. And they all look like food to me, interestingly enough. But, but in a sense, Peter provides a spiritual Rorschach test for us in the terms of theological Idea. So, for example, as a Christian, someone wrote a biblical term up on a piece of paper and showed it to you, like love or mercy or grace. It would evoke a certain response in you, right? It would, it would connect to something in your heart and your mind and something else God's word says. I'm interested, though, that if we did a, a spiritual test in this way with the word holiness... When you saw that term on that page, what would be your reaction? Maybe what's your reaction this morning as we read this text and you hear Peter repeatedly refer to this idea of holiness. Maybe you have a visceral reaction. Maybe there's a negative connotation to this word for you. Maybe you think about legalism or obedience or yuck, all that stuff in the Old Testament. Let me say something provocative here, and, and then we're going to spend some time unpacking this from the text. But here it is. Church, if you and I are indifferent to holiness, you and I are indifferent to God. You see, when we sin, it's not primarily against someone or something or some institution or some tradition, although all that might be true. When we sin, it is primarily against God. Look at verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, that's God, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And, of course, Peter quotes Leviticus 19. That's a direct quote from Leviticus 19. In fact, that that 
that idea, be holy as I am holy, is found all throughout the Old Testament. It's found particularly in the book of Leviticus. Four times it mentions it this way. And the holy, again, is one of those religious terms that we have visceral reactions to or maybe confusion or it seems obtuse or, or obsolete. To be holy biblically simply means to be set apart, to be, to be different, to be distinguished. And, of course, God is the supreme, I'm not even going to have the right vocabulary of this, culmination or fulfillment of Holy, it's the only attribute of God, and R.C. Sproul has made this point many times, it's the only attribute of God that is echoed not once, not twice, but three times around the throne of God, Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. In other words, it seems to be the deepest part and essence of who God is. He is different. He is set apart. He is pure. And here Peter is saying, just as God is holy, believer, you who are not by nature holy, you are called to live as one who is holy. You are called to live a holy life. Now understand something about what this means and doesn't mean. This is not just a call to practice religion differently. So in other words, you know, if you're, if you're a Buddhist or a Muslim... That's, that's one form of religion. And if you're a Christian, you know, if you show up to church and you worship in a Christian way and listen to a sermon and sing some songs or go to a Bible study, that's what it means to be holy. Now, some of that's involved, but holiness is not so much a mere activity, but holiness is one's whole way of life. It's not about practicing religion differently on a Sunday. It's about practicing life differently. You see, Paul tells us in Romans 12 that all of life is a spiritual act of worship. So what you do with your credit card, your hobbies, your family time, your money, your media choices, your relationships, all of these are reflections of your heart and my heart they are a spiritual act of worship it's the way that we live as we walk before the face of god and peter reminds us who this holy god is look at verse 17 he says and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds now listen this is another command christian conduct yourselves with fear and again, one of those terms we kind of shrink back from. We hear fear, we think horror film or horror flick or a villain night at Magic Kingdom or something like that. This is not that kind of fear. This is a love of father kind of fear. So my father next to my wife is probably my best friend in my whole, my whole life. 79 years old. He was the best man in my wedding but growing up, and this is still true, I feared him. And by fear him, he was an always present person who I lived my life in relationship with. And so when I was doing my schoolwork, how, how, would, my, how would my dad perceive of what I'm doing? If I was out on the baseball field or the basketball court or if I was mowing the grass, I wanted to please him. I wanted to, I was living my life in sort of reverence of him. 
And that's what Peter is getting at here. And this is why he says in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, by nature, we are not holy, but God is. And see, when we enter from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, our whole life gets shaken. Our whole life and worldview gets turned upside down. And depending upon our family background, depending upon the culture we live in, the era, all those sorts of things, various aspects of this book, the Bible, where we learn about God's holiness, various aspects of it will seem strange and offensive even. And so for our current day and age, what the Bible has to say about sexual ethics and choices in marriage and money, just as some examples, all make us question the Bible and this idea of being holy. But we have to understand something. This is not a matter to be debated. This is theological. This is a theological point. Peter's not just placing out there and saying, God is holy, debate. God is holy, what do you think? God is holy, period. And God alone reserves the right to determine who and what is holy. Knowing that ultimately holiness is a reflection of the very heart and character of God. And Peter says, in light of your new status as Christians, as believers in Christ who now have a living hope, just as your father is holy, you be holy. Now, just let me say a couple things on a practical note before we go to this last point. Where does holiness begin? Let me say, Pastor Paul, what, my goodness, what, that seems like a huge claim. Where does it begin? Well, let's begin in verse 22 where Peter does. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, listen, for a sincere brotherly love, want love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In other words, Peter says, if you want to know where to begin, just begin right where you are, church. Begin right where you are in relationship to your family. Begin right where you are in relationship to the people in your local church and in your community group. Peter goes on to say, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now understand something. Peter here is referring to the way Christians who are called to be holy and set apart are interacting, engaging, treating one another. See, there is a posture that we have towards the outside world, and we're going to talk about that next week. But right now, Peter is talking about our posture towards one another, our posture of holiness, the practice of holiness in relationship to each other. And I think for this season particularly, Four Oaks, this last little phrase in there, slander, I think that's particularly pertinent for us this season. The word literally means to gossip or to backbite, or to speak evil of. That, that term backbite, that, that, that denotes this idea of a, of a wild animal on another wild animal's tail. And the one animal cannot see the other one. It's just running for its life. And the other animal is behind it. Bite, bite, snip, snip, hurt, hurt, destroy, 
destroy. And Peter says, may this never characterize holiness between Christians. You know, by God's providence this morning, as I was getting ready for this sermon, um, checking the Twitter feed, of course, I ran across this article on the Gospel Coalition website by Brett McCracken. It was released literally um, two hours ago, and it's called Church, Don't Let Coronavirus Divide You. And it, I, I commend it to you, it, and we'll, maybe we'll post it online later. But he, he makes the point that, you know, all of us this season have incredibly strong opinions about COVID-19 and what we should and should not be doing. All of us do. You, it's hard to find someone who doesn't have a strong opinion one way or the other. And so often, what do we do, even as believers, and you can see this in our social media feeds, right? We assume the very worst about someone. So someone who wants to gather, wants to meet, wants to get out in public, wants to get back to work, what, what do we do? That person doesn't care. That person doesn't love people. That person just wants their neighbor to die. That person doesn't love other people as God calls us to love other people. We assume the worst. On the other hand, when there are those who, for good reason, don't want to meet or don't want to be in public or don't want to go back to work, we can assume the worst motives about them. They're just being worldly. They're, 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 that's a cowardice. The Bible's not informing their worldview. Why don't they just trust God? And McCracken says in this article, what is called for in this season of brotherly love, brotherly hope, brotherly holiness is humility, patience, sacrifice. And he has a great equation here. Sacrifice plus humility plus patience equals nuance. In other words, these things are complex. And we have to give grace to one another. And we have to live in such a way to do our best not to cause our brother to stumble even as we live out our convictions. Let me just say this last thing here before we leave this point. For folks, there's not a special exemption when it comes to holiness that we apply to social media. Social media just because it's behind a screen and you don't see the other person necessarily doesn't make it a holiness-free zone. See, gossip, rumor, slander, slander, innuendo, presuming the worst, virtually, virtue signaling. See, how we engage each other, can I say something about this? It shows where our hope is, doesn't it? See, if our hope is tied up in ourselves and our ability to persuade and be sovereign and vindicate and help others to see and be all-seeing, all-knowing, all-competent, we are going to introduce acrimony and slander and maliciousness into those relationships with other Christians. And Peter says, leave that stuff to God. Peter says, Christian, stay in your lane. Let God be God. Let him do what God's going to do. You just be obedient. You just focus. You just love your brother and your sister no matter where they are politically, sociologically, medically, or otherwise. And Peter's going to give us a reason here. He says, because we belong to him. And guys, that's the fundamental, fundamental undergirding of this passage about holiness. Let's look at this last point, the purchase of hope. 
Here Peter's going to give us kind of the, the, the trump card, the final play to say, here's ultimately my best hand for trying to help you understand why it is that God has called you to holiness and why it is that you should heed that call. Look at verse 14. Peter calls them obedient children. Now understand something. This doesn't mean children who are acting obediently. In the, in the original language, it's a, it's a possessive. So it literally could read children of obedience. It's a, it's a title. It's a designation. It's a status. What Peter is saying that through the death of Christ, we have been ushered into the family of God. And being ushered into the family of God, we've taken on a new identity. His identity. We've taken on his family name. And that name is obedience. That name is holy. So in other words, it's not merely a matter that we are to be obedient or that we are to be holy. Peter says, that's who you are. That's your very status in nature as a child of God. So in marriage, the wife takes the husband's name. Why? Because they are now part of a new family together. The two have become one. They have children. They take on the same name. And every family, haven't you noticed this, has distinguishing characteristics about it that make it unique to other families. Some families love to travel. Some love to eat. Some love to read. Some love to play sports. Some, for some strange reason, like to camp. I don't understand that. But you get what I'm saying. And for the Christian, what is our family likeness? What is our family status? Here's what Peter says. Holiness. That's, that's you. That's your last name. First name. So be holy as I am holy. And then Peter just, he unpacks this amazing picture of what God did in order to bring us into his family. Look at verse 18. It says, we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Literally, we were purchased. Now, when we hear the word ransom in our 20th, 21st century context, that has all sort of dark and sinister connotations, right? We think about some bad Mel Gibson movie who's dealing with kidnappers and Gary Sinise is the bad guy and he's distorting his voice through a noisemaker and it's like, oh, this extortion of ransom, they're going to kill my loved one unless I pay money. It's just this, it's kind of a traumatic thing. But understand something, in the ancient Near East, ransom was a wonderful thing. See, ransom was an act of love. A ransom was a price paid by beloved family members for another beloved family member. Maybe it was for an indentured servant or slave who they wanted to purchase their freedom or the slave wanted to purchase their freedom. Or maybe really some bad people captured some of your people in a war and you paid a ransom. You paid a price. And understand something, the more important the person, the higher the ransom, the higher the sum. Incredibly valuable. So what does that tell us about God's heart towards us that while we were bound, imprisoned by sin, imprisoned to ourselves, we had a debt. We had a debt that required repayment in the form of our lives for the wages of sin or death. 
But God says, even though I am the one who requires that ransom, I'm going to pay that ransom for you through my only son, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter begins this whole epistle in verse 2 by reminding us that we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And this, this imagery comes from Exodus 24, where Moses commanded that the animal be slaughtered and part of the blood be put on the altar. And you know what they did with the other part? It's kind of gross. They would fling it or, or sprinkle it or slosh it onto the heads of the people. And it was a, it was a signal, that, a sign that a covenant was being made. That because God had saved the people of Israel, because he had ransomed them, counted the sin of their sin onto this sacrifice, this bull, this offering, that, that they now belong to him. They now were owned by God. And what a blessed ownership it was. Because he says, not to mix metaphors, but you were a slave, but now you're a son. Now, now you're my slave, but the way I treat my slaves is they're my sons, they're my, they're my daughters, but the fundamental idea is that you are now part of my family. You belong to me. And Christian, that has a claim on our lives. We no longer belong to ourselves. We no longer belong to the world. We no longer belong to the evil one. Who do we belong to? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Hear that again. You were not your own. You were bought with a price. See, Christ has purchased our hope. He has freed us. He has ransomed us. He has paid the, paid the price by his very own life, his very own blood. And now you and I belong to him. Now we are born to a living hope, and that's the amazing good news. That is the gospel. And so Peter says, Christian, you've been bought with a price. You belong to God. And this is, a, this is an amazing thing. It's an awesome thing to take on the name, the identity of your sovereign, of your Lord, of your new master who, is, who has saved you from sin and death and hell. So now live like it. So now walk in holiness. Set your, have a posture of setting your hope on Christ. Have a posture, a practice of hope by being holy. And remember that your hope was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see next week, God does an amazing thing, not just among the family of God, as we love one another, as we pursue holiness with one another. But he does something that we may not expect for the people and the world around us, which is particularly pertinent this season. And that's where we're going to be next week. And I hope you can join us. Let's pray.